And you can open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. A few years ago, when I was in the midst of my graduate work, I was taking a class on psychological diagnoses. And each week, we would receive a case study of a fictional client. We would read through their narrative, their family history, their demographic information, their activities, and their reason for seeking counseling. And from that information, it was our assignment to then put together a profile of that individual, diagnose the primary psychological issue that was at play in their life, and theorize a possible plan of treatment for them. This was part of my uh, Master of Arts in Counseling that I got along with my MDiv. And it was one of the most challenging and interesting classes that I took, and I walked away from that class with an amazement that while every human and their situation is slightly different, people, for the large, uh, for large part, can also be grouped into categories. Now, that is, I know, anathema in today's world because everybody is a special snowflake. <laughs> but the reality is, is that people can be categorized into large groups. Folks who seem to have a given diagnosis had similar ways of acting, relating, and seeking treatment. In essence, we could create a profile of a given diagnosis that would help us in figuring out a productive treatment plan. Now, in our text today, as we draw closer to the end of the first letter of Paul to Timothy, we find uh, a similar profile of what Paul has developed to show what a false teacher is. He's given a profile of a false teacher. And he's providing this for Timothy to help Timothy protect the flock from false teachers that match this profile. And so this is a help to us. Every one of us should become specialized in this profile so that we can protect ourselves and our congregation and those we love outside of this congregation from false teachers. And so that's what I've entitled the sermon today, The Profile of a False Teacher. Now, why would Paul need to do this for Timothy? Let's pause for a moment and think through this. Why would I need to teach this? Hopefully, I'm not in this category, but friends, here's the deal. I could be. So could Ryan, so could Tyler, so could Nick. Any of us who teach here, we could roll off into this category, and so all of us need to have this. But let's not even think about our church. Let's go back to just the Word and the, the church at Ephesus there. Let's think about this local church in Ephesus and the chronology that the Bible gives us. Ephesus was the church, the local church, where Timothy had been sent as an apostolic delegate and pastor. And I want you guys to realize that their church was probably not too dissimilar from ours. A bunch of people who got together on the Lord's Day uh, to have communion, proclaim the gospel, learn from Scripture, and love one another. Not too dissimilar. Timothy was sent because there were lots of issues and lots of drama. And so Acts 18 tells us that the local church at Ephesus, it was established... The beginning of it was through the preaching and teaching and church planting of Paul in the early years of the 50s AD. It was then built up by the leadership of people like Priscilla and Aquila as they built up a core group of people. And then a person named Apollos came along and he also helped teach as he was discipled by Priscilla and Aquila. And there was a movement of the Spirit, so much so that many people who practiced sorcery and the occult and who worshipped at the temple of Artemis there in Ephesus, there was such a movement of the spirit that they renounced their occult practices and even burnt their occult literature. But as a result of this revival going on in Ephesus, there was also much conflict and drama. There was a riot against Paul and the preaching of the gospel. Artisans, specifically silversmiths who made their living off of fashioning idols of Artemis, were losing money because the gospel was drawing people away from Artemis and to Christ. And they were beyond unhappy about it. You can only imagine. So right from the beginning, Ephesus was a battlefront in the spiritual battlefield of Asia Minor. And a few years later, as outlined in Acts 20, Paul then calls the elders to himself about seven years into that church to bid them farewell as he was headed to Jerusalem because he knew that most likely he was going to face imprisonment or possibly even death. And there in that farewell address, Paul says this in Acts 20, 28 through 31. We read this last week as well. 
He says, pay careful attention, he's saying to the elders of Ephesus, to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Now, this meeting was most likely in the latter half of the 50s AD, probably 57 AD. But a few years later, in the midst of the Roman imprisonment in 60 AD, Paul would hear that things were still going amiss at Ephesus, and so he would write a letter to the church known as the Book of Ephesians, calling them to live out the implications of the gospel in the way they treat one another and love each other. Well, things continued to be a battle, and so then, around 62 AD, after Paul is released from his imprisonment, Paul writes the first letter to Timothy, the one we have in front of us, as Timothy is there in Ephesus. So as we read today, here we are, roughly 12 years into the church plant, five years removed from Acts 20. And in that short time, Paul's warning that some from among the leadership group of Ephesus would show themselves to be wolves in sheep's clothing and lead astray some in the church. And this is proving true as he writes this letter. Now one might ask as we read this, how could this happen? I mean, isn't it obvious when people speaking false doctrine are leading people astray? The simple answer is no, it's not obvious. And that's why so many unknowingly allow themselves to be led astray by churches, pastors and leaders, and even other congregants who are wolves in sheep's clothing. And so Paul has spoken multiple times in 1 Timothy to the situation that was occurring at the time where men in the church of Ephesus were leading people astray. If you'll recall, chapter 1 had a stern warning against false teachers. At the end of the chapter, Paul is so stern that he calls out some of the false leaders by name. I'm sure that went over really well, right? In chapter 3, he outlines what healthy, godly leaders look like and who you should follow. In chapter 4, he contrasts liars who are teaching false doctrine. He contrasts them with godliness and trustworthy teaching that Timothy is to provide. And then in chapter 5, Paul outlines the steps for what you are to do when leaders are in unrepentant sin. And now here, in chapter 6, he gives the profile of a false teacher. Friends, Paul is emphasizing, as we've said many times thus far, that it matters who you follow. It matters who you listen to and from whom you seek counsel and teaching. It matters. It matters so much to Paul that he's willing to spend this much time on it in the book of 1 Timothy. It was and still is one of the greatest travesties that occurs in the church when people are led astray by the simple act of seeking out counsel from those who have no business giving counsel. The word is clear that God will hold false leaders accountable to his wrath. And the word is clear that those who willingly follow those false leaders will also be held to account. It's one of the things that keeps me awake at night and keeps me on my knees in prayer that what I teach you is from the word and not from me. And what our elders teach you is from the word and not from them. It matters who you follow and from whom you seek counsel. And so Paul has given numerous tools and descriptions thus far in this book to help faithful disciples discern the truth. And our text today is no different. So let's delve right into it and see Paul's profile of a false teacher. 1 Timothy 6, verses 3 through 10. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He is an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, 
and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Positive, encouraging word from Paul. <laughs> the first thing that we see in this profile that Paul has given us is that we run into the false teacher's doctrine. The false teacher's doctrine. That which is contrary to Scripture. Friends, this is not a happy section, but it is an important section because it gives us wisdom, the wisdom of God. And we need that wisdom in order to discern the false teacher's doctrine, that which is contrary to Scripture. We see this in verses 3 through 4, the beginning of verse 4. Now, the part I didn't read that is at the beginning of the, the paragraph of many of your Bibles is it says, teach and urge these things. That was the end of the section that Ryan covered last week as he taught us. Teach and urge these things. It concludes a section of various practical instructions for how Timothy should structure and run the church. And at this point in the letter, Paul is trying to teach Timothy about his personal responsibility in leading this church and needing to pursue godliness. Notice that he doesn't say suggest these things if people like it. He says teach and urge these things. And this is very similar to chapter 4, verse 11, where he said command and teach these things. Timothy was to be a strong leader and insist on godly behavior that was obedient to Scripture within the local church of Ephesus. But then there's this hard stop and a sharp contrast if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up, puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. The words teaches a different doctrine in our English is actually just a single word in the Greek. It is heterodidaskali, and it's held in contrast to the word teach. Teach and urge these things, didaski. And the, the prefix of the word in Greek, hetero, means different. Someone who teaches a different doctrine. In other words, the exact contrast to what is good doctrine. And this, plus the following two lines, qualify what is different doctrine. Anything different than what Paul is teaching, anything that doesn't agree with Jesus' teaching, and anything that doesn't lead towards godliness. In other words, good, healthy teaching is that which bears evidence of the fruit of the Spirit, evidence of a heart of reconciliation, evidence of the work of the gospel towards holiness in Christ, and evidence towards sanctification. So that teaching playing out in the lives of those who hear it, if it plays out in these types of fruit, then it is good teaching. Now, false teachers are those whose lives show the opposite. Over time, their lives are trending away from godliness, away from the church, away from Christ. And sometimes, that is not obvious at first, but it takes time to uncover. Paul said that just a bit earlier in chapter 5 when he finishes off saying, uh, the sins of some people, verse 24, are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. It may not be obvious at first. Now, when Paul speaks of a different doctrine or teaching, he is saying anything that is not in line with Scripture. The teachings of Jesus, the teachings of Paul, and all the Old Testament truth from which they taught. In summary, then, what Paul is stating is anyone who teaches a worldview that is not in line with the full canon of Scripture. False teaching is anyone who teaches a worldview that is not in line with the full canon of Scripture. That's so important, I'm going to say it a third time. A false teacher is anyone who teaches a worldview 
that is not in line with the full canon of Scripture. And this is where the news is very bleak in our culture. That worldview, one that's in line with the full canon of Scripture, at least here in the American church, is slowly but surely, and even now, probably not slowly anymore, it's disappearing, and it's almost completely gone. At the end of August, a regular poll was conducted by George Barna and the Cultural Research Center, and what they found is that 9% of those who are self-described Christians hold to a biblical world view. 9%. Pause for effect. 9%. of those who proclaim Christ do not subscribe to the Bible. Therefore, friends, they are not Christians, no matter what they proclaim. Let me unpack what this means a bit. 72% of those surveyed of self-described Christians argue that people are basically good. In other words, they dismiss the very core tenet of pervasive depravity. 71% of self-described Christians consider feelings, experience, or the input of friends and family as their most trusted source of moral guidance. In other words, above the Bible. 58% believe that if a person is good enough or does enough good things, they can earn their way into heaven. I mean, that kind of doesn't jive with what the Bible says, right? 52% claim that determining moral truth is up to each individual. Now, you might say, well, it's only 52%. (laughs) That's the majority In other words, they say there are no moral absolutes that apply to everyone all the time. And a minority, it's a minority, but 46% of those who proclaim to be Christians believe that the marriage of one man to one woman is God's plan for humanity across all cultures. In other words, friends, 54%, the majority, do not believe in the biblical definition of marriage between a man and a woman to procreate and fill the earth and subdue it. Friends, if you're not willing to stand firmly against the rising tide of culture that has already overwhelmed the walls of the church, you will fall to a worldview that is a lie from Satan himself. And what this last two years has shown me in the church at large and even within our own church at Mission is that so many self-proclaimed Christians do not actually see the Bible as inspired, inerrant, and sufficient for all things relating to salvation and godliness. And so, in this time of stress, many have turned to other sources of counsel and worldviews that do not come from the Bible to give them guidance. But friends, to operate not off of biblical truth as the basis for your actions, but off of feelings and self-justification and worldly wisdom, and then proof text it with scriptures, that's not having a biblical worldview. To read the Bible's clear statements on blatant sins, let's just take a couple of them, like the fact that abortion is abhorrent, and that sexual immorality outside of marriage between a man and a woman is abhorrent to God, just to name a few. And then support and glorify them because the world's view makes more sense to you? That's not having a biblical worldview. To pick and choose portions of the Bible and what it commands because it makes sense in your own eyes. That's not having a biblical worldview. And to buy into and support worldly ideologies 
that are led by people who want nothing to do with Christ or his word, that's not having a biblical worldview. In fact, it is to be decidedly unbiblical and anti-Christ. The unfortunate news is that these false worldviews never stop with one person. If they did, we wouldn't be talking about them because each of us, to some extent, were teachers of one another. And when one turns and propagates these unbiblical, anti-Christian, and anti-Christ ideologies and worldviews to their brothers and sisters, supposedly in Christ, they've become a teacher and they need to heed the caution of James in James 3.1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. In Paul's day and in our own, there are unfortunately far too many who, as Paul said to Timothy in chapter 1, desire to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they are making confident assertions. And if this is not the case, if you think I'm being harsh or heavy or mean, why is it that the biblical worldview is only at 9% of self-described Christians? Either these people are not being formed spiritually in churches at all, which is probably the case for many, because not going to church is now kind of a Christian thing, or they are, in fact, being formed decidedly against Christ and his word in those churches. And so Paul finishes this clear statement of identification of those who should be avoided because of their unbiblical teaching with a statement on the underlying character of the person who teaches anti-biblically. He says he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. And this connects back to the core sin of mankind. Do you guys get the heaviness in this? The heaviness is here. The tone I'm trying to impart to you is the tone that Paul is stating. The core sin of mankind is right here. This is the same sin as Eve's unwillingness to trust God in his words and commands. You see, Eve believed that her understanding, her truth, her beliefs were on the same level and even outweighed the plain truth of God's command. In so doing, she became the source of truth and the decider of righteousness and sin. She was puffed up with conceit and understood nothing. And to judge for ourselves what is right and what is wrong, to make ourselves the source of truth that sits in judgment over the word of God, to follow in the spirit of the age that tells you to listen to, quote, my truth, end quote, to do these things confirms that we are deserving of the wrath of the almighty holy God. And we have no excuse. We deserve God's wrath because we have followed in the way of Satan and attempted to usurp the throne of God. In point of fact, friends, there is no truth but God's truth. And Christ alone and his word alone are the way, the truth, and the life. And our salvation required God incarnate, Jesus Christ, to live a sinless life in complete obedience, unlike us, to God's word, and then die a death he did not deserve, to pay the price for our sin of prideful arrogance and conceit that stands in contradiction to God's word. Praise God that it was through his death his resurrection to new life, and his ascension to the throne of the kingdom of God, that our relationship with the Father could be restored and our sin of arrogant pride against God could be forgiven. Submitting to the truth of that gospel, that good news, requires you and I to lower ourselves in humble submission to being servants of God and his worldview and removing ourselves off of the self-righteous throne we have built for ourselves. Brothers and sisters, when you find that someone you know calls themselves a Christian yet holds beliefs and doctrines blatantly contrary to Scripture, you need to lovingly challenge them to submit to God's Word. And then if they don't, consider what influence they have on you. You don't need to be mean. You don't need to berate them. 
You simply need to recognize that they do not believe in God's word, that they are puffed up with conceit and understand nothing. To allow these people to continue to influence you is foolishness. And it's contrary to the advice of Peter and Paul who say this, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and dissensions and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Friends, do you submit to the word of God in its fullness? Are you one who has Jesus as Lord and his word as your source of truth and worldview? Or are you the judge of what in God's word is to be obeyed and what is not? I mean, right now, look at this on the screen. How many of you in your minds and heart are going, yeah, Paul must not have meant that. That seems mean. You've just become judge of the word. You're just like Eve. Do you submit to the word of God? Do you follow it when it is plain? Do you lovingly consider it and debate it and discuss it with trusted brothers and sisters when it's not plain? And do you show charity in those times where it's not plain? When it's clear, our common goal in this church is to obey it. Our common goal in this church is to search God's word so that we might understand it, conform to it, and obey it. Now, if you're asking, Hans, how can I develop a biblical worldview? Maybe this is the first time you've even hear, heard of this idea. It's very simple. Number one, read God's word, and then read it again, 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 and then study God's word. Immerse yourself in the spiritual formation that's going on in this church. Or, if this isn't the church for you, which could be the case, do it at another gospel-preaching church. Immerse yourself. And then, when you approach teaching from God's word, don't filter through your authority, but check to see that what is being taught is right in front of you on the page, and then allow yourself to be formed by it. Just to be blatantly clear, guys, if you come to this church when I'm preaching or Ryan's preaching or Tyler's preaching or Nick's preaching, and your goal is to see if we agree with you, you are in sin. You're in sin, and you need to repent. You are not the authority, just like I am not the authority. God's word is the authority. Your only job is to sit and listen and take in and see if the points we put on the screen are actually there in the text. And if they are not, through God's grace, he has given you the power and the command to come to us and correct us. If they are, then your job is to listen and conform to God's word. Not because I say it, but because God's word says it. Well, Paul continues, giving the profile to Timothy. And next, he moves on from the false teacher's doctrine to the false teacher's behavior which is unhealthy actions devoid of the truth. And this is in the second part of verse 4 through verse 5. Paul is gracious to give us this next layer of the profile because it's often the case that Christians debating an issue will play what I call proof text ping pong. You guys ever seen this before, proof text ping pong? Where two people will throw around verses that seem to suit their purpose and goal and seem to kind of make sense, and that is confusing for anyone listening or watching. You guys ever seen that before? Now, I can just hear the thoughts of the poor Ephesians church as they listened. Well, Timothy is using Scripture, and he sounds right, but so are Hymenaeus and Alexander. Who do we listen to? You guys ever feel like you're in that spot? Raise your hand if you ever feel like you're in that spot. Yeah, me too. Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you with this fact. This is not a new problem, so get used to it. And the fact that this happens in a church does not mean the church is unhealthy. In fact, it probably means the church is healthy because it's trying to figure out the core of God's word. 
The conflict and drama that the local church of Ephesus was facing is part of the spiritual warfare that occurs in the church that Satan is constantly attempting to infiltrate and confuse and bring in false teaching. And so it is our congregational responsibility to constantly and consistently protect and watch over the teaching of the church from the pulpit, but also as we disciple one another. I'm so thankful. I had a couple of meetings this week with brothers or sisters who came to me and said, hey, uh, one of them was about Sunday seminar. Another one of them was about stuff in 1 Timothy. Another one was about my teaching on COVID a few weeks ago. And I'm so thankful for brothers or sisters who approach an inquiry and say, hey, I'm kind of curious about this. I'd love to know your thoughts. Let's go through the word together. That's, that's awesome. That's what it should be. Amen? Amen. But it's hard to discern sometimes. And to expect it to be easily discernible is a false expectation. Go with me, to, for example, to another situation that was happening in the church of Corinth. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and look with me at a simple situation that was going on there. 2 Corinthians 11. Chapter 11, verse 1 in 2 Corinthians, it says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. This is very similar to so often I see men and women who are acting blatantly against what God commands, and yet I watch sheep wander after them. It's so sad to me as a pastor. He goes on, he says, Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles, even if I am unskilled in speaking. I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we have made this plain to you in all things. Skip ahead to verse 12. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. In all my time as a pastor, in in lay ministry and as a a lead pastor, that's about 20 years of ministry, you know what the number one qualification people give me when they say they're listening to counsel from someone? It's, well, they say they're a Christian. Guys, that doesn't mean anything. That's why in 1 Timothy 3, he lays out character. He lays out the lifestyle of the person. And when he talks about false teachers, he lays out their behavior and their character. Here in Corinth, these men had come into the Corinthian church who were, by even Paul's account, more charismatic than him, better speakers than him, and they were teaching things antithetical to the gospel and the word of God. And the church at Corinth was being caught up in these false teachings. And so Paul is warning them against it. He's a good pastor. He's warning them against following people who are spouting false teachings. And Paul knows it is hard to discern for many Christians. That's why he's doing this. The Ephesian church would have looked at Timothy and seen a supposed brother and sent from Paul. But then they would also look at Hymenaeus and Alexander and see supposed brothers that they've been friends with. And they would have thought, who do I listen to? This is where the Ephesian church would have needed to look at the behavior and actions as well as the character and lifestyle of who they were listening to for truth. In other words, what patterns are in their lives? What is the outcome of their actions? Is their life full of faithfulness and relationships and service to the church? Or is there a trail of disagreement, of division and broken relationships behind them? Paul gives a list here of words that you can see in verse 4. Go back to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 4, starting there, and you're going to see a list of words that he gives speaking of the behavior of these false teachers. The false teacher has, he starts off with, an unhealthy craving for controversy. 
Right there, he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. First, an unhealthy craving for controversy. The false teacher loves drama. They always seem to be at the center of drama that is going on around them. The phrase unhealthy craving is like a hankering. You guys ever have a hankerance for something, like a burger? A hankering. In other words, the false teacher is one who can never sit comfortably in a peaceful life, simply loving and serving and learning. They have to have something to complain about or controversy to stew over. They also have a hankering, it says, for quarrels about words. This is the person that will always have a correction to what you say. They will always want to debate every little thing. They will want to have the last word in the room. They are quarrelsome. And this constant quarrelsomeness produces certain fruit or outcomes. First of all, he lists envy. You can see the origins of a false teacher brewing when they are not focused on their walk with Christ, but they're wondering when they will get a position of power, a position of influence. And they're frustrated when they don't. There's a constant discontentedness at how things are done because they are not done their way. And they're constantly pointing the finger and looking at other people as opposed to paying attention to their own walk. That's envy. Then dissension. A false leader brings conflict or discord, not unity and common mission. Then slander. A false teacher will speak against someone else with an intent to injure their reputation in the eyes of the person to whom they are speaking. And this is closely connected to the next item, evil suspicions. Because the slander will often not be based in fact or evidence, and it will rarely, if ever, have a heart that is open to reconciling with those they are slandering. Evil suspicions. A false teacher will sow seeds of doubt in those that listen about another leader or person. And again, there's a difference that needs critical thinking. Follow this with me. Paul blatantly stands up in public in chapter 1, and proclaims Hymenaeus and Alexander false teachers. Now, this was not for the purpose to invite or, or, or to just simply slander and leave it be. This was for the purpose to invite repentance for the ultimate goal of reconciliation, restoration, peace, and unity in the body. Amen. It was to warn the flock openly about a false teacher in their midst. A false teacher will not go public, though. They will subversively, behind closed doors, so discord and suspicion, ask me how I know. And then constant friction, that's another fruit that comes. This is the characteristic that this person is never really content to serve, to love, to learn, to just care for others. There's always something wrong, always something to complain about or have a concern about. They are a thorn in the flesh that cannot be plucked out. And last but not least, it says that they will put constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. This is the idea of magnetism. These false teachers who are sowing suspicions and discord and causing friction will always seem to attract anyone else who is discontented and wanting to cause disruption because people who are doing that will find one another. Paul says these false teachers and the people that band together with them are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Now, let me pause for a moment and clarify something because I want to reiterate what Ryan spoke on last week. As elders and pastors, we want to hear concerns, questions, and feedback. In fact, we have open elder meetings for that purpose. So you can come and state publicly what you need us to hear. And when we do receive that, we will do everything within our power to work with you and figure out what can be changed, improved, or corrected but please understand that concerns, questions, or constructive feedback should be just that, for the purpose of constructive growth, for the purpose of caring for the church. None of what has been mentioned by Paul in this chapter does that. Envy, discord, slander, or suspicions. These tear down, cause division, and ultimately destroy the witness of the church as it attempts to proclaim the gospel of Christ to a lost world. 
Now, as we look at this profile, we might ask, why would someone do such a thing? But friends, my experience has been that relatively few, if any of the people that might fit into this category of false teachers, do so out of sheer malice and malevolence. They often don't even know they're doing it because, remember, they have so embedded themselves as the authority of right and wrong that they have self-justified their activity. All that we have looked at so far, including our reading from the New Testament in 2 Peter, spoke to the fact that these are motivations that are driving these false teachers and disruptive sheep in the direction that causes harm. Remember 2 Peter that we read just earlier. False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep." Friends, that phrase, deny their master, isn't that they verbally deny Jesus Christ. In fact, it's just the opposite. Notice that Peter just said they would be among the church. In other words, they're calling themselves Christians. It's that they would deny their master, their Lord, because that word has connotations of authority. And by their refusal to submit to God's word, they were, by their actions, denying Christ as Lord and master. Friends, you may think that certain topics that the Bible speaks clearly on are just secondary issues to debate. But friends, in areas where the Bible is crystal clear, they are not debates. They are tests of your loyalty to Christ as King. So again, why would someone do such a thing? Well, because they are motivated. You and I could be motivated by something other than the Spirit of God and other than obedience to Christ as king. We have to each constantly look at our internal motivations. Why are we doing the things we are doing? Is it building up the local church? Is it caring for others and doing what's best for others? Or is it for self? In the case of the local church at Ephesus, the issue was that these false teachers were fleecing the people so that they could get rich. And this is what he's referring to when he says at the end of verse 5, these false teachers were doing all of this, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So Paul then unpacks this through the next five verses. Let's take a look there. He says, but godliness, verse 6, with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content." But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Friends, you are either going to be relying upon Christ, who was pierced on your behalf, or you're going to walk away from Christ and rightfully receive the wrath of God and pierce yourselves with many pangs. Here what Paul is describing is the false teacher's motivation, an idolatrous desire for present gain. An idolatrous desire for present gain. Yeah, now you might notice that this is a large section that seems to be around the topic of wealth and material possessions specifically, and you would be right. It's specifically talking in this context about wealth. And I think that there's even under that a more important principle that we can take from Paul's words, that the godly teacher and leader puts their investment, if you will, toward the eternal in terms of their own walk and shepherding and serving those around them with an example and teaching that points towards eternity. But in contrast, the false teacher puts their investment, if you will, towards the present and what they can gain in the immediate. And this is why Peter, later in the same chapter, of 2 Peter 2 compares them to animals who only operate on instinct. They're only looking at the now, not eternity. And so Paul gives us the truth of godliness. He says godliness, in other words, obedience to Christ and his commands and constant pursuit of sanctification. Godliness with contentment is great gain. It's all you need. It's all you need. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, in other words, the essentials, with these we will be content. 
So Paul is asking the teachers, and in a sense asking us, what are you driven by? Are you driven by the eternal or the present life? In other words, is heaven just the thing that you tack on to the most important part, which is this life, and heaven's what you do when you die? Or are you Christ's now and forever? Do you realize that the greatest gain is what we put ahead of us into eternity through holiness and evangelism and service to one another? If not, you are probably motivated by something other than the Spirit of God. Now, Paul is saying, if you know that this life is but a breath and we can take nothing out of the world, friends, he says, why then do you stress and strive and spend all of your time and energy striving for gain in this present world? Friends, it would be like taking your child to a store and they have $50 to spend and you see this toy that you know will last for decades and so you say, son, spend it on that. And they say, no, but there's this plastic thing that I know that will break three seconds after I get it. Dad, I want to spend my $50 on that. And you think to yourself, that's insane. Well, welcome to what God sees when he sees us. C.S. Lewis talked about how we wrestle around with mud pies in the mud while parents are trying to take their child to the coast. But I want to spend time in my mud pie. We're missing the point. Why do you stress and strive for gain in this present world? The immediate and most obvious application of this truth is religious leaders who, at some point in their ministry, start to become obscenely wealthy because of it. Friends, when you live in an age where there is an Instagram account devoted to outing pastors for the extremely expensive sneakers that they wear when they preach, you know we live in a time where this is very, very uh, important for us to understand. Just so you know, all my shoes come from a place called oddballs.com because I'm a giant and I need to get them there. <laughs> and they're not expensive. <laughs> right? This is, this is very pertinent to us. The immediate and most obvious application is these con men. And our world is filled with con men, prosperity preachers who line their pockets and buy their mansions and jets under the guise of spreading the gospel, when in fact what they are spreading is a false gospel sourced out of hell. And many pastors, brothers who I love dearly, I've watched them, they start in this place and their church gets bigger and becomes a mega church, and all of a sudden they have their mansion by the river and they have their multiple cars, and they have their money. It can come for any of us, myself included. This kind of false teaching is especially prevalent throughout the developing world in places like Burkina Faso. It's everywhere, billboards everywhere, because prosperity preachers prey on the poor. And so you can pray that God would break the power of these false teachers there and here at home. Friends, Christ was very clear, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. We heard earlier from Psalm 49 that those who trust in their riches rather than trusting in the salvation and redemption brought about by God are fools. And I think this principle can extend to other forms of present gain as well. That's why he says that love of money is a root. It, it turns into other things. And so you might be sitting here saying, well, whew, good thing I'm not rich. Friends, if you have shelter over your head, 100 bucks in your bank account, and a mode of transportation, you are in the top percentage of wealth in the world. You may say that you're not wealthy, but you are. For many in this congregation, you may not be wealthy by American standards, but you are wealthy in comparison to the rest of the world. Perhaps your motivation is not riches in terms of you want rubies and diamonds and emeralds and gold bars, but you want things that emanate from riches like, see if this hits at all, comfort, security, power, success, status. And this is how Satan gets after us. Those are the branches that come from the root of the love of money. We become enslaved and ensnared in the love of money and material goods, not because we want to become Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, but because we think if we can just get a bit more money, we can finally be secure, finally be comfortable, or 
And friends, this seems so simple and not that big of a deal. If we can just get enough money to have more vacations as a family and build more memories, then we will finally be content. Even that, that has good connotations and good pieces of it, becomes a snare. When this happens, contentment becomes elusive. And we are no longer content with our necessities being provided for. The love of money becomes a root that leads us into idolatry of other things. Comfort, security, entertainment, escape, hedonism, a desire to control others. Friends, do any of these describe idolatry in your life that needs to be surrendered to Christ and done away with? When these desires creep in, they draw us away from the core contentment that is found in the daily physical provision of God and in the eternal provision of salvation given to us through Christ. Paul will show in the ending section of this letter that he does not think having wealth is sinful. He'll be very clear about that. But he does caution the church that pursuing it with a love and faithfulness that is intended only for God will lead to all forms of destruction. And it will most likely lead you away from a devotion to Christ and Christ alone. It won't be immediate, but it will be a slow burn, never recognizing how far you are from Christ and his people until it's too late. In our text today, Paul has given us the profile of a false teacher. One who will cause division among the body and lead people astray. And friends, it might be me. It might be an elder. It might be you. We have to be careful. The motivation at its core when we breathe out false teaching is to serve self. In this case, to make oneself rich in the church of Ephesus. In our case, it may be for other reasons, but it's always to serve self, to justify self. Friends, if you are tr stuck trying to discern if someone should be listened to as a teacher or one who gives you counsel, look for their motivation and ask the questions. Is what they're saying for the betterment of the hearer, always trying to point them to Christ? Is it always trying to build up the church? Or is it self-serving and self-justifying? Is it causing dissension, tearing down the church, building up themselves, validating their own opinions and their own judgments? If so, you are listening to a false teacher, and I would lovingly caution you to run the other way. Their doctrine will be contrary to Scripture. Their behavior will be unhealthy and devoid of truth, only leading to division and destruction for the church. And their motivation will be an idolatrous desire for present gain. We each play a part in holding ourselves and anyone else who enters these doors accountable to proper doctrine, godly behavior, and motivation that emanates from the Spirit. May the church have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to it today.